Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog, and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. I am really excited to welcome today's guest, my friend, the amazing LaShans. LaShans is a Tony and Emmy Award-winning actress who recently completed a triumphant run in the Broadway play Trouble in Mind. She made her Broadway debut in 1986 as a tap dancer in the musical review Uptown, It's Hot. And she got her first leading role on Broadway in 1990, creating T. Mourne in the original production of Once on this Island. Since then, she has won accolades and awards for her performances in many other plays and musicals, including Summer, the Donna Summer musical, The Secret Life of Bees, A Christmas Carol, and so many more. And of course, she brought Seeley to life on the Broadway stage in the original production of The Color Purple, for which she won a Tony Award in 2006. She's done lots of great work in films and television as well, including in The Good Fight, The Blacklist, and The Underground Railroad, just to name a few. Plays, films, TV, concerts, she does it all, and she does it spectacularly. And she looks amazing, by the way. LaShawns <laughs> is the mom to two daughters, Celia Rose Gooding, who'll be 22 next month, and Zaya LaShawns Gooding, who is 20. Sally is also a Broadway star and was nominated for a 2020 Tony Award for her role in her first Broadway production, Jag Little Pill. Here's a fun fact. LaShawns and Celia made Broadway history when they became the first mother and daughter ever to perform on Broadway at the same time, with LaShawns starring in The Christmas Carol and Celia starring in Jag Little Pill. LaShawns is a graduate of the University of the Arts, where she majored in theater, dance, voice, and acting. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, LaShawns. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wow, that's that's an introduction. I need to record that and put it on yeah. my my voice my voicemail. <laughs> well, that was easy to do. I had to edit it down actually. <laughs> so, I am so thrilled that you could join me here today to talk about your parenting, which frankly is as impressive as your stellar acting and singing career. I've known you for some time and you're so easy and fun to talk with and you've got so many parenting pearls of wisdom to share. So let's get started. I was just going to start by saying that we're the first black mother and daughter to be on Broadway ah. at the same time. Just wanted to add that. Thank you for that clarification. But in my book, you can still be the first, but okay, the first black. <laughs> the most significant in my book. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, I like to start conversations about parenting with hearing about how you were parented. Can you tell me a little bit about how you grew up? I, I know you were born in Florida and you moved to Connecticut mm-hmm. when you were young, but can you tell me about how it was? You have siblings. How did you move from Florida to Connecticut? Sure. So I was raised by young parents. My parents were teenagers when they met and I was born. My mother was 15 when I was born. My dad was 17. And um, I'm the oldest of seven. Wow. By the time my mother was 21, she had 22. I'm sorry. She had four children. Mm. My dad was military. He was Coast Guard. He actually retired a lieutenant commander in the Coast Guard. My mother was a stay-at-home mom for most of my childhood. And then halfway through my childhood, my parents divorced. That's how we got to Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So my mother took me and my siblings up to Connecticut to live with my Uncle Norman. And then we moved into our own home. And that's where I finished high school, up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And, you know, it was so interesting being born in the South and raised by Southern parents. We're very family-oriented in Florida. Most of my family is in Florida on both sides. My my father and my mother's family are still, a lot of them are still there. 
And we spent a lot of my childhood. I didn't have a lot of friends because my siblings were my friends. Mm. Because my dad was in the military, we traveled quite a bit up and down the East and West Coast. And every year we were in a new school. So it was hard to hold on to your Mm. friends. And so my siblings were my friends. We were very close, very tight, my brothers and sisters and I. And we still are today. And yeah, so so I had both my parents in the home from half my childhood. And then my mom remarried again to a lovely man who's mm-hmm. no longer with us, my stepdad, James. He passed away actually two years ago, but he took the baton and, and took me into high school <laughs> and through the rest of my life. Wow. Wow. That, that's great. So when did they know and when did you know that you had this interest in entertaining? How did your parents, your, your, your mom in particular, react to all of this? At what point did you go from, I like to sing, I like to dance, to I think this is something that I can actually do? I mean, this is a career path for me. Well, like you said, I primarily wanted to be a dancer. I studied dance from six yeah. years old on, and I really wanted to be a professional dancer in a company like Alvin Ailey. Huh. That's what I went to school for. But I also sang and acted, and I loved acting as well. But I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life until we moved to Connecticut when I started and I was introduced to theater. I would see those commercials, mm-hmm. those Broadway commercials. And I said, Mom, I really want to go see that show. Can you take me down to New York and see that show? And she would. She would oblige and take me to see musicals. And first play I saw was for Colored Girls. The first musical I saw was Chicago. And wow. I fell in love. I said, this is my tribe. So when I got, when I went to college, I went to two colleges, by the way, I went to Morgan State University mm-hmm. for two years and I studied drama and then transferred from Morgan to the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. And that's where I finished. Mm-hmm. And I always knew I wanted to be in this industry. It wasn't until I got to New York with my first show that I really knew that theater was my home and that this was going to be my profession. My parents have always been supportive, no matter what I wanted to do. My mom was one of those moms that was always encouraging and said, you know, you can be the president or a basket weaver, whatever you want, you can do it. And I've just always had that belief that I could do whatever I wanted to do in my life because of the support of my family. My dad, though, although he was supportive, (laughs) he definitely said to me, if your creative tree doesn't bear any fruit two years out of school, then you have to promise me that you'll go back to school for a law, which is the only other thing I wanted to do was to be an attorney. So, but think about it, acting attorneys kind of in the same vein. Oh, absolutely. As a, as a former attorney, I can tell you standing up in that courtroom, you definitely feel like you're acting. So... So, well, let me just say a quick kudos to your mom, to your parents, but but definitely to your mom for doing something that I really advocate for, and that's exposing you to arts. I mean, you say, I want to go to this play, and she says, sure, let's go, whether or not she had any particular interest in going to see it. And mm-hmm. and also to both your parents, because what you've described as this feel, having this freedom to pursue whatever you want to pursue. As the oldest of seven kids, often the first one feels this weight of responsibility to to sort of go a certain route. And so it's uh, impressive that your parents didn't sort of put all that on you and, and let you I mean, it worked out clearly. <laughs> but, uh. Oh, but I did feel that responsibility. Trust me. My parents were young <laughs> and they, I, I pre, my mother says that I was her helper. My siblings call me second mom because my mom ah. was very young. And so I did have that, that responsibility of taking care of my siblings at a very young age. And trust me, I worked all that out in therapy. 
but um (laughs) (laughs) but they did also give me the freedom that you're talking about because they were both Mm -hmm. young loving optimistic i mean my parents were thriving in the late 60s and 70s in fact we would have i had an aunt who was a member of the black panther party so we would have black panther meetings in in our basement in massachusetts when we lived there for a while so it was a childhood that was rich with the freedom, the exposure, and um, the responsibility to um, to our culture as well. Wow. Boy, it sounds really great. Did any of your siblings follow you into the entertainment world? My brother is a musician and a composer. He oh. um, plays trombone. He worked with some of our greats, Roy Hargrove, Lionel Hampton. He toured with, a, with some really impressive people. Roy Ayers, he toured with quite a few people. He's in the industry. Wow, that's great. So I have to say, when I've looked at your bio, and and I'm sure this is not exactly the case, but it really looks like your route from sitting in the theater, looking at the people on stage saying, I want to do this, to actually standing on the stage and doing this was relatively direct. It didn't seem, you know, you hear stories of people that are toiling for a long time and then sort of making their way onto the stage. I mean, it looks like your first out-of-town uh, work or one of your early ones went to Broadway and then suddenly you were there. Is that is that fair? I mean, it, it, some people say it's not fair, but it was pretty fair no, to me. No, no, I meant, is that a, <laughs> no. It is fair. I meant, is that, a, is that right? Is that the way oh, it went? Right. Yes. Yes, that is exact. I mean, I was in college. I was at the University of the Arts and it was a summer job that went to Broadway. Um, it didn't do well on Broadway, unfortunately. We closed in a matter of weeks, but <laughs> I got my equity card. I got, um, you know, I got exposure right away. And soon after <laughs> that, I booked the international tour of Dream Girls and went on the road and learned so much more about the business and what it takes to be a thriving, successful artist and what you have to do, the level of commitment. In fact, after the Dream Girls tour, I had a conversation with my mom. I was like, mom, I don't know if I want to do this because it was, it was tough. It, that's when I really learned mm-hmm. while I enjoy performing, this is a very tough industry and you have to have the stamina and the commitment to it. And my mom encouraged me to give it another shot. And I did. And mm-hmm. um, that's when Once on this Island happened. So wow, it was good. your entry into this world, it seems a, a little charm that's great. I, it's it's a thrilling one to me. And it continued into your personal life because from what I've read, even the way you met your husband, Calvin Gooding, it's straight out of a rom-com. I mean, yeah. you're, can you tell the, the story? I mean, you went to the same salon. Can you tell the story of how you yes. met? Yes. So he and I got our hair done by the same person. And my picture was on the wall in his salon. His name is Anderson Phillips. He's no longer with us, God rest him. But he he owned a salon called Scissors on 47th Street in Midtown Mm -hmm. Manhattan. And apparently, this is what Calvin told me when I met him. He said that, he said, I've been trying to meet you for two years. Apparently, he would sit and look at my picture and he would ask Andy, you know, when are you going to introduce me to this woman? And he said, you're not ready for her. You're not ready for her. So, so this years, was your headshot that they my had on the wall. That they had on the wall. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, I want to meet this woman. And then we were out at, I, it was a Memorial Day weekend in the city and B. Smith's on 8th Avenue. And I forget mm-hmm. what that oh, I remember. corner, you know, remember B. <laughs> yeah. Smith's with the windows. Mm-hmm. So can, I'm, yeah. I'm sitting in the windows uh, at one of the window seats with my girlfriend. And I see him walking towards 
the walking down the sidewalk. And I'm like, and I point to my girlfriend, I, oh, look at that guy. Cause he had a like a tank on. I was like, check him out. And so she was like, Yeah, he's handsome. And he was like, Yeah. Next thing I know, he was inside. He came in B. Smith. And and he was, he's very Calvin was very gregarious and outgoing. And wherever he was, people were laughing and joking. He was the center of most conversations, just had so much charisma. And and I was noticing, I, com- I commented to my girlfriend, I said, look, the guy is talking to everyone in here. Then he makes his way over to, to us. And I said, girl, he's coming over here. And he comes over and he, <laughs> and he says, excuse me, I just, I hate to interrupt ladies, but is your picture hanging on the wall in Scissors Hair Salon? I said, yes. He said, I've been trying to meet you for two years. He said, Anderson would not introduce me. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, and he was so charming and he gave me his card and he said, you know, I'd love to take you out for dinner, a scoop of ice cream, a trip to the moon, whatever you want. And I was like, okay. Oh, handsome. (laughs) So I called him and we had a great first date and the rest is history. Man. I mean, talk about the best meet cute ever. I mean, it's it's like, like. You see this guy in the street and he comes in and whisks you away. The rest of the story is you got married and and you have two daughters. Now, fate stepped in to dramatically change your life's course when on September 11, 2001, uh, your husband Calvin perished in the World Trade Center terrorist attack. And Celia was two and you were eight months pregnant with Zaya. Now, I know you have been asked many, many, many times over the decades since then to talk about how you cope with raising two children in the face of this terrible tragedy. Suddenly becoming a single mom, which is what not at all was in the plan. Um, but I, I just well, I don't want to go down that road. I want to stop here for a second, and I want to fast forward to a quote from your daughter, Celia, to something she said about you two years ago when she was 20. She said, my mom has always been my greatest inspiration. She raised two black girls in a predominantly white space and taught them to be outspoken, strong, confident women. Okay. When I read that, I was like, talk about goals. I mean, <laughs> she said this in an interview and she's, she's consistently said in interviews, what a great mom you are. So I actually, I want to spend some time talking about how you were able to grow from this suddenly sort of in the circumstance that you would never have imagined mom with two little tiny kids, one not even there yet, and significantly with a very specific career that required your time and attention to this inspirational sniper mom, and we'll get to that, but who was really attuned (laughs) to her children. I mean, the story is so rich and important, certainly for, for people who have experienced loss, but I think for everyone who finds themselves in circumstances that they can't imagine with the responsibility of children. And they, they can't imagine them, the circumstance, but they have to go on. So so let's just start with the infrastructure that you had to create. You're on a ship and it hits a huge iceberg. I mean, how did you have a village to call on? Did people, did you have a lot of, I mean, you had siblings and all, did you have people that were able to come and support you? You know, 9-11 was huge. I mean, the world watched. And um, in my community, the theater community, everyone knew knew me and knew that I was pregnant. So it was just all so, so overwhelming in the moment, just to say at that mm-hmm. time, I was just, I was just sort of overwhelmed with everything that was happening. And the fact that I was pregnant, that took my focus more than mm-hmm. anything, because I had to stay healthy for my daughter. So the, you know, 
people ask me all the time, how were you able to do it? And I, all I can say is I had to stay strong for my daughter. There was, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, there, there was no way that I was going to let let the circumstances of something outside of our control change mm-hmm. how she was going to be brought into the world. I needed to be mm-hmm. my healthiest, best self. But I mm-hmm. definitely had support. My family, immediately, I have the most supportive family. They were there. My father, who at the time lived in Alaska um, with his second wife, moved to my apartment in Riverdale at the time, Calvin and I had a two-bedroom apartment in Riverdale, and slept on my couch until my daughter was born and stayed with me for, it was like six weeks. He just moved in and he Mm -hmm. left everything. He just came and slept on my couch. My mom was back and forth often. My siblings were back and forth. Um, And then everyone in my theater community, I had so much support. Allison Tucker Mitchell and her husband, Brian Stokes Mitchell, They literally slept on my floor in my bedroom and Calvin's company that he worked for, Cantor Fitzgerald, Howard Lutnick and Allison Lutnick, who are very good friends of mine, they were so supportive. The firm, Cantor Fitzgerald, was so supportive. So I had this cushion of people around me ready to catch anything that happened. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. I fell, they were right there ready to catch me and support me. But But my inner strength came from the commitment that my daughters were not going to lose their mother like they lost their father. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've always been a very ambitious and outspoken person for Black women and what we need and how society has marginalized us in so many ways and how, you know, with racism and everything else that exists in the world and how Black women and Black girls have to struggle so much to just be accepted and, and considered valuable in, in, in our society. It's always been important to me to advocate for that. And raising mm-hmm. two Black girls, it was as if the, the focus became about their success in this world mm-hmm. and pushing all the hate and everything away from them so that they can be successful in this world. It was, it was my personal mission. Because I, you know, one of the things I always thought was I'm never going to, growing up, I was like, oh, I'll never raise my children alone. I'll always have a partner in my life. Mm-hmm. And when he was taken, it was as if my worst fear was mm-hmm. realized. I, here I am raising my two daughters alone, a black woman mm-hmm. in America with two black girls alone mm-hmm. with no man to help us or no partner to help us. So what am I going to do? Am I going to fall and let the circumstances cave on me and become sort of a victim to my circumstances? Or am I going to take this and go forward and teach my daughters that you can have, you can thrive in this life, given any circumstances that you're in? You still have a responsibility to choose joy, to choose happiness, to choose success, to be ambitious, to keep your eyes focused on what's ahead of you. And, um, and yes, take everything that's happened to you and use it to motivate you to keep going forward. And I just, I just insisted on that for my daughters. And Calvin would have wanted nothing but excellence for them as well. So in mm. his memory, mm-hmm. I also wanted to stand up and face everything that came our way. So uh, that is so well said. And it is incredible that you not only figured out that you had to do that, but that you did it. I mean, you were able to do it. And I want to kind of break down the two parts of your daughter's description of, of what you did, because she, she talked about you're raising two black girls in a predominantly white space. And 
when I when I read that, I thought, okay, you know, many of us are in that circumstance where our children are sort of diversifying circumstances, or they're just trying to make their way in a world where everyone doesn't look like them. So how did you, over time, help them develop and maintain such a strong sense of their beautiful Black selves? Now, I got a little hint because you had some early exposure to the Black Panther Party. So you had deep roots, <laughs> deep roots of, of, of self-determination and, and self-worth. Mm-hmm. But how did you go about that? How did that manifest itself as they went off to school and, and, and made friends and lived life? You know, we, are, we do live in a white space. I live in Westchester. My daughters went to Hackley, which is a predominantly white school. And, you know, their, their circles were predominantly white. But we are a Black family. My family is blackity black, black, black. Okay. So we get together and, you know, we, you know, the music is playing, people are playing cards, someone's in the kitchen cooking and I have a large family. So we have this support system in our family that gave my daughters and that I insisted that they have, which is their self pride and to understand their history Mm -hmm. and to understand where they come from. Mm -hmm. And I really spent a lot of time teaching them the value of so many of our uh, black prominent leaders and and giving them examples mm-hmm. of a lot of womenists like bell hooks in fact my daughter jokes a lot about um, when she was in the 5th grade how um Celia she jokes she she reminds me of how embarrassed this was for her but but now she appreciates it when she was in the 5th grade at Hackley they had to pick a great american writer and recite one of their poems and the, the teacher, of course, is white school, white teacher. We're, we're giving them all of these incredible white poets and, um, you know, a couple black male poets. But the black women were not represented in this list. And I said, Celia, you have to do Ego Trippin' by Nikki Giovanni. I'm sorry. You have to do a poem by <laughs> Nikki Giovanni. And it has to be Ego Trippin'. Now, I don't know how your audience probably knows this, this piece, but it's basically... about a black woman talking about how amazing she is. That's all the poem is. Mm -hmm. Every line in the poem, she says, (laughs) the filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. I am bad. I mean, that's just one line in the the poem. (laughs) And so I had my my young child recite (laughs) this incredible poem in in fifth grade. And these were the kinds of things that Mm -hmm. I put in them I, I mean, I didn't want them to be mm-hmm. anti anything, but but most importantly, they had to be pro-black. They had to know who they are, know where they come yeah. from, know their value, appreciate the history and the influence that their that their ancestors have provided. All of the prominent people in the African diaspora, all the things that we've done, because society strips that from them, tells them you black people are you know all the stereotypes. You you pick them you know, black women, the stereotypes of black Mm -hmm. women, you know, and all of these images that they see in television and film. I just did everything I could to uh, build their world full of positive black representation from childhood going all the way up. It's just something I insisted on doing for them. Yeah, that, no, that is great. I definitely, whenever in in many of these podcasts and many of my guests and I have talked about the importance, the critical importance of knowing history, and you have just laid it out (laughs) as to why it's so important and and how much it relates to, to confidence. I just, one little note I have to make, you mentioned your, your family and, and 
getting together with them and doing stuff with them. Did I read somewhere that Bidwist is a thing that oh, you yes. guys play Bidwist? Did I read oh, that? Yes. You were, <laughs> yes. You were a regular Bidwist. <laughs> I was so excited when we taught our kids to play Bidwist. <laughs> I felt like I can't, I can't. I can't give them everything, but at least the, I cannot have my children growing up and not knowing how to play. They may have only played like that one summer, right? <laughs> exactly. They have to know how to play bid with. Bid with so and spades. I'm glad that. Yes. And I imagine, yes, bid with and spades. Okay. And so your daughters know how to play bid oh, with. Yes. My youngest doesn't know as well, but Celia will sit down at the table if I if we need a fourth, and she'll play with me. <laughs> you know. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. So back to the confidence, which you have so wonderfully said, how you were able to imbue them with this confidence. So I want to ask you now about sort of the balance that you have to strike when you are trying to build confidence in your kids. You you sort of give them the history and you tell them their voice matters and their thoughts matter. But then how do you balance that with the parenting role? Because there comes a point, particularly when you're a single parent, you have to you're good cop, bad cop, you're all cops. So how did you juggle the sort of, you know, wanting them to be confident, wanting them to have a voice, but when they use their voice um, to, to, to combat or to debate you oh, yeah. as they were growing up? How, how, did you, how did you juggle that? That's so interesting because um, my youngest daughter is the one who challenges me the most. And she's always been that way. When she was two years old, mm -hmm. um, the first time I said no to her and she understood what no meant, the look she gave me mm -hmm. let me know that I was in for <laughs> it with my little two-year-old because, and she, she's always challenged the status quo. That's who she is. She challenges every mm -hmm. single thing that mm -hmm. I've ever said to her. She forces me to rethink some of my parenting style. And she forces me to include and open my mind and include the way her generation thinks today. And they, they both do it, but mm -hmm. um, Zaya particularly does it more than Celia. And um, it's hard because mm -hmm. there are things that sometimes I completely disagree with, with what some of the things she brings to me, but I have to listen and receive what she's saying in a way that values her opinion, values her voice, and makes room for her own experiences. We had a very intense conversation not too long ago, she and I, about a decision that she had to make. And um, I was completely against her choice, her decision. I was like, Zaya, you really should do mm -hmm. something else, you know, without going into the story. And she said, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she said, mm -hmm. Mom, these are my mistakes. You have to let me make my mistakes. If it's a mistake, I need to learn from it. You can't protect me every single time and with everything, which is the kind of parent I am. You know, if, if, if there's any problem in school, I'm there in a heartbeat. That's why they do call me sniper mom. <laughs> they know that about me. But she says, you have to let me make my mistakes, mom. And when she said that, Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, you know what? There's some, something very wise in that statement, young girl. You're absolutely right. These mm -hmm. are, this is your life. You have to learn. I can give you as much instruction as I possibly can, and I can only pray that you will listen to me. But at the end of the day, this is your life. Mm -hmm. You're a young adult, and you have to experience life on your terms. Now, I'm not going to let her do anything dangerous, but right. she will have to... Like she said, if I fail, let me fail and let me learn how to pick myself back up. 
And so I had to step back and let mm-hmm. that happen. It's hard though. Woo, it's hard. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It, it, oh, no question. We both have 20 something year old children. And yeah, no, it is really hard. And, and as I always say, it's hard just because we remember Hard to remember what you were like when you were five, but we remember what we were like when we were their age. It's like, and so, yeah. so it's hard not to put ourselves in, in their shoes. So this works well when, when your children are old enough for you to have that really important conversation. I mean, I, I have to applaud both of you because for her to be able to say that to you means that she had really good home training to be able to, and has been encouraged to speak her mind. And she spoke wisely. And for you to be able to hear it without sort of, you know, playing the parent because I say role, that's really great. But what happens when they're like, when she was, or she or her sister were like seven or 10? I mean, what I'm trying to get at is, it seems to me that there's this level of respect that you have to sort of maintain or that they have to maintain Mm -hmm. in the course of finding their voices. Did you, did you ever have to talk to them about that? Like not overstepping with you? Well, in my home, there was never any of that. Like they were very respectful girls. It was one of the things that I teach them and have Mm -hmm. taught them their whole lives is to be respectful of those older than you. Yes, definitely respect your your mother Mm -hmm. and your your elders, but to all but I wasn't the kind of parent also that was my way or the highway. There were a couple of situations where I insisted for their safety that certain choices, you know, I I laid down the the gauntlet in certain Mm -hmm. in a couple situations just for safety. Like for instance, learning how to drive, you know, they're New Yorkers. So they felt, oh, I don't need to learn mm-hmm. how to drive. I was like, yes, you do. And I'm sorry, you're going to learn how to drive. Mm-hmm. Like there are certain things that I insisted <laughs> on, yeah. um, you know, that I kind of forced my hand in, but I raised them to be respectful. I raised them to be kind and graceful and never rude. I would, I would say to them all the time, there is never an occasion to be rude. If they're, if I am, if I, mm-hmm. if you see me get hit by a car in front of you, you do not have the right to go and say something disrespectful or hurtful to someone standing next to you. It's just never an occasion to do that. You always Mm -hmm. have to be mindful Mm -hmm. of how Mm -hmm. you treat people because how you treat people is going to basically see how people should treat you and and how you live Mm -hmm. in the world Mm -hmm. and how, you know, your success in life will be because everything is about relationships. You have to develop good, solid relationships and and make sure that your your community is is healthy and supportive. And the only way to have a strong community of friends and loved ones is by being that for others. And so that was one of the main lessons mm-hmm. I taught them. And I modeled it for them. That's something that I've always done with my friends and always been very helpful and supportive with my friends. And they see that. And so they weren't very disrespectful. Of course, they tried things growing up, you know. They did all the typical teenage things that they tried to do <laughs> to me and everything. But at the end of the day, they were also very, we, we were all very close. It's the three of us, it's three girls. And we were, we were very close. We, we spent our summers, you mm-hmm. know, in Martha's mm-hmm. Reign together. We traveled quite a bit together. Um, everything that they wanted to do, I supported. Every single choice. Zaya, my youngest, boy, did she bounce around as a kid. I mean, she went from wanting to be in a dance troupe and they both studied at Ailey, but then they didn't want to be at Ailey. One of them wanted to be in a dance troupe. Then she went from that to fencing. Then she went from fencing to baseball. Then she became the first black student body president at Hackley because she has that kind of ambition. She's very bright. And so 
there was the, you know, she just went all over the place. And so there I was <laughs> hopping all over the place trying to support them. But I knew that they would settle into something. So yeah, clearly knew that she wanted to be an artist from early on. And Zaya was was all over the place. But now she she's always studied languages. Now she wants to be a linguistics professor. So, not professor, but uh, she wants to preserve languages. That's what she really wants to do. Wow. But yeah, I just I just felt that it's important to support them where they are and let them, you know, put the guardrails on, definitely put the bumpers on them, mm-hmm. but but support them where they are and let them listen to their own internal voices mm-hmm. and, and follow that with, you know, my ear also, also listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to ask you, I got to go back to the sniper mom thing, you're, which I love that phrase, sniper mom. And, and Celia has defined it as all seeing, but from afar. It's her, her quote is she's 200 feet away and 20 stories up focusing because as soon as something is a hair off, she's right there. <laughs> so I love that. I love the imagery. And and what's really impressive about that is, by the way, as you are doing all this really important raising of your daughters, you're also holding down an award-winning career in an industry that requires you to be places. And I mean, that's not a nine to five by any stretch. So I'd love to know some secrets of the sniper mom. I mean, if, if people, parents listening, I mean, so, so many of us would love that. I mean, it's like perfect. You're not in the midst, you're, but you got that, you got the, the scope trained on them. How, how did, how are you able to do this? Well, you know, the term helicopter mom was kind mm-hmm. of where it was born out of because, you know, there are people that are helicopter parents and I never wanted to be that for my daughters. I never wanted to be the mm-hmm. one who was always at every single, I mean, I wanted to be supportive, but I didn't want to be mm-hmm. all up in the mix a little bit. I wanted them to sort of find their own way and stake their own claim and make and, and create their own presence in the world. But I always, always, always knew where they were. I had that, uh, what's, what's that app that, that when you can see where your kids are all the time, the finder, you know, find what you can share Oh, share your location. So I insisted that, you know, we share locations. I would oftentimes have conversations with those around them. Mm -hmm. You know, for instance, if, if there was a, I always made sure that I was friendly with their best friends. (laughs) I hosted gatherings at my home a lot. You know, a lot of the the parties and get togethers were right here in my kids play area. I had, you know, so I always tried to keep my third eye on everything that was happening, but, but gave them the space Mm -hmm. in the, at the same time. There was there was a situation once when Celia was playing basketball in school and the coach, I don't know if he thought because she was a young black girl that she should be the best on the basketball team, but she hated it. She hated basketball and he was very hard on her. He pushed her a lot. And one day she came home and she said she was really sad and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. And she said, yeah, the coach yelled at me today and you know, it just just really upset me. I just thought it was unfair. And all I could think was here, here is this older, str- large white man yelling at my 12 year old daughter to the point where she's crying and, mm-hmm. and felt a little hard. It was, was hard. it was hard for her to tell me that. Mm-hmm. So this is all about being a sniper mom. So, you know, I, I took care of her at home. I built her back up. I, I you know, I, I, I did my parenting with her and got her back on her two feet and instilled her confidence back in her. And then I went to that school and had a nice conversation with this coach. And I said to him very directly, I said, if there was another man 
yelling at your 12 year old daughter to the point where she started crying, how would you feel? And he immediately got it. He apologized. He apologized mm-hmm. to Celia. And he thanked me for giving. I had a very long conversation with him about educating him on what he just did and what he mm-hmm. could have mm-hmm. potentially damaged in her. And the image that she now has of mm-hmm. white men, coach, white male coaches, what he mm-hmm. did by making her cry in that moment, how damaging it was to her. And I switched it and said, if this were your child and you had a daughter that age, I said, wouldn't you be concerned about her sense of, of self, her identity, her confidence? I said, you did all of that. You, you potentially would have damaged all of that if I did not build her back up. And you have to be mindful of what you could have done to my, what you might've done to my daughter, what you risked doing to her. And mm-hmm. I need you to address mm-hmm. that. And it, and it was, it was a hard conversation to have with him, but, um, her dad wasn't here. And if her dad were mm-hmm. here, of course, mm-hmm. he would have stepped up to that coach. And, you know, he was a basketball <laughs> right. player anyway. But yeah. I had to find another way to get him to listen to me and, and mm-hmm. understand that you will not speak to my daughter like this. And so she doesn't mm-hmm. know that. But then she said when she mm-hmm. got back the next day, she said, I said, how was, how was uh, practice today, Celia? She said, oh, mama was great. You know, he, he apologized to me, he told me everything. He said, so I, everything was fine. And then she said, wait a minute, did you talk to him? <laughs> and <it's> the, <laughs> they, they got used to me having conversations on their behalf without them knowing about it. Or <laughs> like, for instance, when uh, different, different situations, lots of different situations. But I just think it's important that you have an eye on those around your children, not just your children. Mm-hmm. Make sure mm-hmm. that you, you know, the people that they're talking to, who has their ear, who, who, who are they caring about, and then get to know some of their parents as well or their connections. I mean, they're older now, but, um, but I'm very close to their friends because it's important to me to know that if there is something that is going on that isn't wise, a bad choice that they might be making, like, you know, teenagers drinking or partying or whatever they're doing, mm-hmm. I made sure that their friends knew to call me mm. if they were ever in a situation that wasn't safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's actually, that that did happen one time. I won't say which child, won't out them, mm-hmm. but, um, mm-hmm. but that did happen. I got a call one night from a friend that was hanging out with one of my daughters and said, you need to come and pick them up. And I said, thank mm-hmm. you. For, mm, for that, mm. you know, and so um, mm-hmm. there are times wow. when you know everything isn't everything isn't roses, you know, you know how right. it is. No, it's, absolutely. Okay, I just have to. We're gonna wrap up here, but I just have to like bullet point these pearls of wisdom that you just gave us. So the prescription you just gave for sort of being that sniper mom is great. You stay close to them sort of technologically and and physically when you can, but technologically. And that's important because a lot of parents are afraid to follow their children on Instagram. They're afraid to, to, or they let their children block them, which I never believed in. I mean, it's good that your kids, you, you have an agreement that if you have this ability. It's important for you as a parent to be able to access it. You host the events so you get to know all their friends and know the people around them. And then the third thing, which I am such a huge advocate of, is you operate behind the scenes. 
fundamentally, you know, you're, you're an intelligence agent. I mean, you get the stuff that's supposed to happen to happen, but you don't necessarily have to involve your children in the sausage making, as it were. <laughs> I mean, yes. it would have gone a lot of different sideways if you had said to your daughter, I'm going to go talk to that coach and I'm going to tell him that, you know, it, it, that, that would not work. I mean, whatever you built her up with would just be crumbling. So it's really important to know when it's time to go behind the scenes to get the, to get the sniper mom job done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So. Always paying attention. Yeah, always paying attention. My daughter's in Canada right now, living up there in Toronto working. And um, I have the ear of quite a few people up there. I have their phone, <laughs> their numbers in my phone. I know where she lives. I have uh, <laughs> and I, sh- I have her share her location with me and I, I check her location. They check mm-hmm. mine, too, which is hilarious. <laughs> they are they're, they're constantly checking my location. <laughs> So that's funny. Everybody's looking out for one another. (laughs) That's great. So, so Lishans, I love talking to you always, and this has been so great, but I'm going to wrap it up here. And first I want to say thank you so much, so, so much for this. It, it's, I knew that it would be a great conversation and it really, it really Uh is. And so, and you had so many really great pieces of advice for parents hearing about your experience and your advice. It was just really golden. So there's one more thing before we go, and I'm going to ask you to play the GCP lightning round, which is just a few questions. And the first one is, Mm -hmm. what's your favorite poem or saying? Favorite poem or saying? Well, my favorite poem is Ego Trippin' by Nikki Giovanni, oh, okay. which I already mentioned. <laughs> good, good, good. Yeah. So everybody out there is going to go speeding to that now so they can <laughs> they can read it and enjoy it. It's a and great one. Tell me two of your favorite children's books, and they can be either books you grew up with or ones you like reading with your daughters. Two of my favorite children's books. Um, wow. They have so many. Uh that's such a hard question. It's a lightning round. So let me, uh, let me do this really quickly. <laughs> oh my God. Favorite. I, well, they, one of the ones that they loved it when they were young, young, young preschoolers was the very hungry caterpillar. Don't know why oh, they love that so much, love but that. they love that. <laughs> that was their favorite, like as little, little girls. And then mm-hmm. middle age, they were really into wrinkle in time. They thought that was great. Oh, they really loved that. oh great. Yeah, they, yeah, they love those two. And then I wrote a children's book, Little Diva. They love yeah. her. I have to say that one. So Of course you do. <laughs> you should just lead with that one. Little Diva, of course. <laughs> Little Diva. Um, and um, mm-hmm. okay, two other quick questions. And and again, these are lighthearted. Not I'm not trying to go deep here, but just what mom moment, recent or past, would you just kind of love to do over? I mean, more of a, a light mom moment. I mean, anything recently where you're like, shoot. <laughs> Uh, oh, I want to um, redo. Yes, yes. I would, I would, I would love to have done a redo on my youngest daughter, uh, letting her dye her hair green at eleven. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> and then tell me a moment where you nailed it, absolutely nailed it as a mom, like a proud mommy moment. <laughs> oh. Um, a proud mommy moment. Um, oh, I'm gonna cry. Um, oh. Proud mommy moment was watching Zaya speak for her commencement um, at an enti- in front of the entire school at Hackley as the first black student body president. Oh, I looked. I was watching her, and I thought, "Yeah, I did that." <laughs> <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> 
<laughs> Those are such great answers. And again, Lashance, I thank you so much for being with us. I'm ready to have you on for more conversation, but we'll have to we'll wrap it here. But thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's wonderful talking to you today, Carol. I'm so happy that you have this platform for so many of us. It's necessary and I'm and I'm just so happy to have been a part of it. Great. Thanks so much. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.